I was planning to be done today with Philippians, and hopefully we're never done with Philippians, right? Hopefully we keep going back and back and, and drinking from that well uh, of God's Word. But um, I was planning to be done with our series in Philippians. However, I, you know, verse 20 just stuck out, and I thought, let's just focus uh, our time together on a Sunday looking at the glory of God. So that's what we're going to do. And the title of my sermon is God's Glory. The big idea, God's glory is for our good and must be our ultimate goal in all things. Um, I want to make a plea this morning. I want to plead with you that rather than orienting your life around your children or your spouse or your job, that you would orient your life around the glory of Christ in all things. Instead of making those things the ultimate or the purpose, make God's glory the purpose in all those things. Does that make sense? We know Paul, right? Formerly Saul. And I think many of us, if not all of us, I never want to say all of us, but most of us are probably pretty familiar with Acts 9. What happens in Acts 9? Saul, a.k.a. Paul, beholds the glory of Christ and is forever changed. The, the transition in Acts 9 is incredible. It begins with this note, uh, Paul is breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. Okay, So he is opposed to Christianity, he is seeking to snuff out the name of Jesus, and then... All of a sudden, what happens? He beholds the risen, glorious Savior, and as a result, his life is forever changed. Is that you? Is that you? Have you beheld God's glory in the gospel, and have you been forever changed? There is no change. There is no salvation outside of beholding the glorious gospel of Christ. Amen? Those who behold, or those who beheld, uh, hopefully you continue to behold. I, I hope and pray that every time we gather on the Lord's Day and throughout the week, and we'll talk more about this when we get in the application, but as you spend time reading God's Word, I hope every day afresh you are beholding the glory of God in Christ in His Word. But those who behold God's glory in the gospel are transformed by God to pursue God's glory in all things, okay? So again, unless you've beheld the glory of Christ and the gospel of God, you are not going to pursue God's glory in all things. Again, those who behold God's glory and the gospel are transformed by God to what? To pursue God's glory in all things. Why does Paul end his letter the way he does? On this clear note of God's glory, what does this relate to? It relates to everything. Everything. It grounds everything. God's glory grounds everything Paul has said up to this point. God's glory is meant to be the all-encompassing motivation for all that we do as believers. It is the supreme goal of the Christian life. So I want to do a few things today, quickly. I want to define God's glory. What are we talking about here, God's glory? This is the what question. What is God's glory? That's the first thing we're going to do. 
Then I want us to answer the how question. Namely, how do we respond to God's glory? How do we pursue it? Once we've seen it, once by God's grace we've been meant to behold it, how do we respond to it? What does that look like? And then finally, let's answer the why question. Namely, why must this be the supreme goal of the Christian life, the church life? So today we're going to be reviewing what we've looked at thus far in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And then we're going to be exploring this overarching purpose of his letter, which I would argue is God's glory. So let's go. Who's ready? Let's go. God's glory, what is it? Number one, how do we respond to it? Number two, and finally, why do we do it? Namely, why do we glorify him? Number one, what is God's glory? Again, this is the entire point of the Christian life. In fact, this is the purpose of all of existence. All creation, all that God has done, is doing and will do is for his glory. Everything that is, everything that exists, is aimed at this goal according to the sovereignty of God. Well, I enjoy Greek. Uh, the Greek word for glory is doxa. Doxa. Now, check out what this word means. This is really cool. You can just write doxa in English, but that, that long O sound, doxa. Doxa, glory in the Greek, denotes splendor and radiance, a state of being magnificent, greatness. Okay, so glory is greatness, fame, renown, honor, and prestige. Oh. Where do we see God's greatness, his splendor and radiance? What has God done to make us aware of his honor, his renown, his prestige? Let's start with a definition. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to seek to provide biblical support for that definition. So here's the definition for doxa, God's glory. God's glory refers to the revelation of God's power and character through, this is a long definition by the way, through the visible manifestation of his awesome presence in the context of creation, judgment, and salvation, oftentimes in response to promises made that was like a 15-minute definition. Let me just break that down quickly. Think of it this way. What is God doing throughout redemptive history? He's creating, he's judging, and he's saving. And through those great glorious acts, God's character is revealed, right? I mean, when God creates, what, do you stand around picking your nose? No, you say what? Wow! Oh my goodness! Did he take a hammer and nails? No, he created ex nihilo, right? Let it be, and it was. That's incredible. When God does these things and he did them in time and space, we are meant to respond with what? Wow. Holy awe, tremble, quaking. So again, think of it this way. Throughout redemptive history, God is creating. He's judging and he's saving. And through those great acts, he's revealing his character. And through his character, we see what? His glory. Does that make sense? His glory. Okay, let me just tease this out and massage it a little more. Throughout redemptive history, the Lord is seen, okay, creating, yes, judging, yes, and saving, yes, 
And in all these acts, his glorious character is revealed. What do we see when God is creating, judging, and saving? He's good. He's just. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's gracious. He's faithful. He's loving. And all of this for his, say it with me, glory. Namely, so that we might glorify him. God reveals his glory so that we might what? Glorify him. Thankfully, God doesn't operate behind closed doors, but on the stage of time and space to be seen. And what we see is so that we might recognize his matchless power and thus glorify his name. Let's examine a few texts here. This will be helpful, I believe. God's glory in creation, Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the, the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Okay, so that's God's glory in creation. God's glory in salvation. Exodus 16.10. Guys, oh, I'm so pumped to be in Exodus. Just a few more weeks. But what do we see in Exodus? God's glory in what? What is he doing? He's saving his people. Exodus 16.10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness... And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Again, this is in the context of what? Salvation. The Exodus represented God's great salvation event for his people Israel. And throughout Exodus, as we'll see in a few weeks, God means to display his glory through his saving work on behalf of his people. Next, God's glory in judgment. So we've already seen God's glory in creation. Next, God's glory in salvation. Thirdly, God's glory in judgment. Acts 5.11. So I was preaching at uh, Redemption Baptist Church in Nacogdoches, our plant, last Sunday. They're going through Acts. This was my text. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Acts 5.11. It reads, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to deceive the church and thus lie to God, and they are what? They are struck down dead. God's judgment, His holiness is on display, and the church responds in awe, in reverence. This is the appropriate response to what? God's glory. His judgment is for His what? It's for His glory. Now perhaps, oh, let's go to the cross. Spoiler alert. Perhaps there is no event in redemptive history that displays the glory of God in such a beautiful way as the cross of Jesus Christ. Now again, I like to refer to the whole Christ event. Okay, we, we talk about, when we talk about the gospel, we don't just talk about the cross. We talk about his perfect life before the cross. We talk about the cross, his sacrifice on our behalf. And we talk about the empty tomb, right? And all this for the glory of God. But specifically now, I want to look at the cross. At the cross, the Lord provides new creation. In fact, it is that climactic new creation event that all of God's promises in the Old Testament are leading up to. At the cross, the Lord judges sin. So at the cross, we have creation, albeit new creation. At the cross, we have judgment, right? Sin is judged in the perfect Son of God. And at the cross, the Lord provides what? Salvation. The cross is for the glory of God because through the cross, God's awesome 
character is revealed. At the cross, again, we have God's work of creation, his judgment, and his salvation, and all this for his glory so that we might tremble in awe before him, amazed by his glorious character. This is in your notes. God's character, his glorious character revealed at the cross. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So first, his love is revealed at the cross. His love is revealed at the cross. Again, what is the point that we're trying to make here? Through these great acts of creation, judgment, and salvation, God reveals his character for his what? Because again, when you, when you see how loving God is, that he would save a sinner like me, what is the appropriate response? Wow! Ah, oh, praise, worship. He reveals his glory so that we might glorify him. I'm probably going to say that a thousand times. You can keep counting if you want, but that might distract you, so don't do that. Romans 3, 23 to 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show what? God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so his righteousness and justice are revealed at the cross so that we might what? Glorify him. Amen? We see his glory at the cross, and what is our response, church? We, yeah, wow. Amen. Good. Wow. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. His mercy is revealed at the cross. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his what? Grace. His grace is revealed at the cross. This is incredible. What have we seen so far at the cross? What? His love, his righteousness and justice, his mercy, his grace. Let's keep going. Can we go a little bit more? I mean, if you're tired of looking at the cross, woe unto you. And I mean that. Woe unto me. Colossians 1.22 He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. His holiness is revealed at the cross. God is holy. Amen? It's a good thing. God is holy. Therefore, we must be made holy to dwell with the holy God. And guess what accomplished that? The the cross. One more. Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty is revealed at the cross. All of these characteristics have to do with God's glory, His doxa, His matchless radiance and greatness. We are meant 
to behold the cross and tremble in awe before the King of Kings. I love 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I probably reference it at least one out of every two sermons. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ, namely in his saving work on our behalf, that we behold the glory of God. The gospel is for his glory. Number two. Again, we must understand our text and context, which brings us to question two. Because I want to explore this theme in light of Philippians. So how do we respond to God's glory? What's the answer? We glorify him, okay? But let's go a little deeper. To answer this question, how do we respond to God's glory? We simply turn to Philippians 2. And I want us to follow Paul's argument here, his careful line of reasoning. This is, this is a sweet passage. This is a really sweet passage. And I'm just going to quickly run through it. In verse 3 of Philippians 2, Paul calls for the church in Philippi to embrace humility. Be humble so that you can selflessly serve one another. And then in verse 5, he points to an example. Who is perfectly humble? Who? Christ. So in verse 5, he points to the example of Jesus who humbled himself by leaving heavenly glory and taking the form of a servant to serve his people by giving his life on the cross. The same Jesus, Paul tells us, has been raised. And one day, in response to this glorious Savior and his incredible saving work, every knee will bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, verses 9 to 11. The proper response to the glorious Savior, His incarnation, His death and resurrection, is that He be what? Glorified. In awe and wonder that moves us to bow down and confess Him, Jesus, as Lord. So what is the appropriate response to God's glory in Jesus Christ? It's worship. It's worship. The proper response to God's glory is what? It's worship. Those who behold His glory are meant to worship Him. Why does God reveal His glory throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, through creation, through judgment, through salvation, so that He might be what? Glorified. Glorified. Worship, however, let me just correct this, because it oftentimes needs to be corrected. Worship is more than what transpires in the first 25 minutes of our time together, right? That is worship, to be sure, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It's more than singing. It's a way of life. Recall Paul's words in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the what? By the mercies of God. We could say the glory of God, in the gospel of God. What is Paul doing in Romans 1 to 11? That's a lot of scripture. I'm going to summarize it. He reveals his glory through the gospel. God's mercy on display through the gospel. And in response to that mercy, in response to that glory, what does Paul say? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Your logikos worship. Your reasonable worship. Your rational worship. It is 
reasonable. It is logical. It makes sense that you would worship God in response to his glory seen in the gospel. Does that make sense? This refers to a holistic, comprehensive, total life response to the gospel of God. It is a life wholly committed to following Jesus. I love this quote by Tim Chalice in his little book, Run to Win, which we gave away when? Man camp. And what's coming up in two weeks? My goal, never mind. <laughs> Another day. Tim Chalice. What's the, this, I can't. God, this is the quote from Tim Chalice. God does not save you so he can make much of you, but so you can make much of him. And as we'll see shortly, no one exemplifies that like Paul. So what does it look like to seek and pursue God's glory? Now we're just going to dive into Philippians by looking at Paul's example. Again, what is Paul doing in Philippians? Remember, the aim or goal of Paul's writing is the glory of God. Where do we see God being glorified in Philippians? What's the answer? Everywhere. <laughs> Philippians itself is a response to God's glory. And all that is commanded throughout represents an appropriate response to God's glory. All that Paul writes is meant to evoke God's glory, to draw our attention to it. When you read the scriptures, what is the appropriate response? Wow, this, right? This. All right, so let's trace Paul's work of highlighting God's glory from Philippians 1 all the way to 4.20, which is our verse for today. So what comes before Philippians 4.20? Again, this is going to be like a lightning fast round. So listen, in Philippians 1, Paul highlights the gospel's work in the church in Philippi for God's glory. Right? He's highlighting what God has been doing in the church. Paul is giving thanks for God's work in the church. And that for whose glory? Who's working? God. In who? In whom? The church. Why? For his, for his glory. In Philippians 1, Paul highlights the advancement of the gospel through his suffering. For whose glory? For God's glory. In Philippians 2, Paul calls the Philippians to imitate Christ for whose glory? God's glory. In Philippians 2, Paul calls the church to live as God's rescued people and to shine as lights in the world in response to God's glory, in this for God's glory. In Philippians 2, Paul points to the gospel's work in Timothy and Epaphroditus for God's glory. In Philippians 3, Paul warns against false teachers. Why? For God's glory. <laughs> in Philippians 3, Paul highlights his singular focus, which is to become more and more like Christ, which is the appropriate response to God's glory in this four, say it with me, God's glory. In Philippians 4, Paul calls the church to pursue their sanctification. Why? For God's glory. And finally, once more, in Philippians 4, Paul highlights his own life to draw attention to Paul? No. He highlights his own life, and specifically his complete and utter contentment in Christ, even in chains, for what? God's glory. 
Everything Paul did, his ministry and writings, was for the fame, honor, and greatness of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Paul embodies this himself. His life is one of complete commitment to the glory of King Jesus. What's a big theme in Philippians? Imitation, right? What does Paul say? Follow my example and the examples of others like me, right? Do as I do. What is Paul doing? He is embodying this full-out commitment to the glory of Christ in all things. Paul embodied a beautiful life of glory pursuit by treasuring Jesus supremely and finding ultimate joy and contentment in him. Where do we see this? Again, Paul's life brings to light the supreme worth of Christ. Paul had beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ, and his life, as a result, was one of singular commitment to pursuing the glory of God. Four passages in Philippians where we see this. Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what is he referring to there? His chains, his suffering. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Even in chains, Whose glory is Paul seeking? Christ's. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's the first point in your notes. In chains, God's glory was paramount. What's up with Paul? I mean, most of us today, honestly, here, probably think he's crazy. You shouldn't. This should be the norm. Amen? I mean, in chains. In chains, what was Paul about? The glory of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. In life or in death, God's glory was paramount. If he lived, God's glory. If he died, what? God's glory. Philippians 3.8-12, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as what? Rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Listen to Paul. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was compelled by God's glory. He was compelled by it. Philippians 4, our last passage here, 11 to 13. Again, I want us to see how Paul himself embodied this principle, God's glory in all things. Amen? Are you seeing it? Man, I'm praying this morning that this grabs a hold of you, that it's contagious, that you're like, yes, I am going to reorient my life around the glory of Christ, everything I do for his glory. Not just Sunday mornings, not just Wednesday nights, everything, your work, your family, 
for the glory of Christ. Why? We're not there yet, but that's the third question, which is really helpful. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. I hope you don't think I'm yelling at you, by the way. I love you. I need this. I have needed this. This has been so good for my soul this week. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I mean, listen to Paul, guys. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was content in God's glory. He was content in God's glory. You can follow Paul's example here. I don't have a man crush on Paul. You know why I love Paul so much? Because of his singular focus for the glory of Christ in the advancement of the gospel. I want that. Amen? Make God's glory your sole pursuit. Now, the follow-up question is this. This is really good. This is really helpful. Here's the follow-up question. How do we grow in our pursuit of God's glory? If you're a Christian here, I know. I know you care about God's glory. I know that. I do. If you're truly saved, if you've been regenerated by the Spirit of God, through the gospel of God, I know that, like me, you care about God's glory. But here's the question. Do you want to grow in your pursuit of God's glory? Are you content with where you're at right now? No, I'm good, Chris. I don't don't want to be challenged. I kind of like how things are right now. Don't make me uncomfortable. I, I don't care if you're uncomfortable. If it's the Spirit working through the Word, amen? If it's my words, then I do care. I don't want that. But I want us to see together, I'm getting ahead of myself, that the reason this should be the all-encompassing motivation of our lives is because Christ is worthy. Amen? He's worthy. Well, let's answer the question together. How do we grow in our pursuit of God's glory? The Word. Maybe you're thinking, Chris, it's always the answer with you, the Word. Okay. I'm not going to apologize for that. It's the Word. The Word. The Word reveals His glory so that we might glorify Him. If you're not here, you're not going to behold His glory. You're not. And if you're not here, you're not going to hear His glory. You're not going to sing His glory. So two things here. First, in his word. In his word, through his awesome acts of creation, judgment, and salvation, and God's grandiose faithfulness, he reveals his character, right? Through these things, in his word, he reveals his character. He's good, merciful, just, holy, righteous, loving. And our appropriate response to all of this is to do what? To glorify him. Think of it this way. This will be helpful. Our Bible reading time, and I'm talking about just your personal devotional time, which all of us should be doing, right? If this is the only time you hear the word, shame on you. Listen, man, and I I mean that. I love you, but if you're a Christian and this is the only time you hear the word, I've met Christians in other parts of the world who were desperate for the Bible. They would have wrestled me to the ground to get a Bible, which isn't hard to do. But they just, they wanted God's word so bad, they would share it amongst themselves, the Bible. We have multiple copies in our homes, don't we? So don't, 
I shouldn't have said shame on you. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm not trying to yell at you, but there's no excuse, right? If this is the only time you're hearing Scripture, you're limiting yourself to beholding the glory of God in the gospel. Amen? Don't do that. That's foolish. That's foolish. Our Bible reading time is to be an exercise of glorifying God. Okay? Our Bible reading time is to be an exercise of glorifying God. Now, let me talk about the corporate. That was the personal, right? Our corporate gathering every Lord's Day is intended to be an exercise of what? Glorifying God. Recall the early church. Now, this is a passage all of us, most of us are familiar with. Acts 2, 42-47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe. Everybody say awe. A-W-E. Awe came upon every soul. The effect of this gathering is seen in verse 43, awe. And awe is tantamount to glorifying the Lord. Okay? The word's being read, it's being taught, and all of them are responding in unison, awe. They're glorifying God. Here's the movement. Write this down. Here's the movement. This is for the personal. Read, behold, and glorify. Repeat. Read, behold, and glorify. Repeat. Okay? When you're at home in the Word, read it. What? Behold the glory of God and glorify. Praise Him. Thank Him. Oh, God, it's so good. Thank you for that reminder in Ephesians 2, 1 and 10. One, I was dead. I could do nothing to save myself, but God, in Your grace, You made me alive. Woo! That was genuine. <laughs> I mean, come on. Now, that's the personal time. With the gathered church, gather, behold, and glorify. Gather, behold, and glorify. Every Sunday, gather, behold, and what? Glorify. Here's the point. If you neglect the Word, right, that personal reading time, and this gathering, then you are neglecting the most important duty and privilege you have as a believer, which is to glorify the king. So don't do that. Remember, the Bible is God's grand story of rescue. And in its pages, we have revealed God's awesome character through his awesome acts of creation, judgment, and salvation. All of this is for his glory. And the proper response to all of this is that we glorify him. It's worship. It's a life of praise, a life wholly committed to the honor and fame and greatness of Jesus Christ. Think, maybe write this down if, you're, if you have a fast pen, okay? If you can write as fast as I can talk. When we worship God, when we worship God, we are simply speaking back to Him His glorious character revealed through His glorious acts revealed in his glorious word that's all we're doing when we worship god we're speaking back to him what he reveals to us in his word yes we speak back to him in prayer praise and practice his love mercy goodness holiness and faithfulness now don't miss this point does that make sense we, we read the bible we gather as a church and through the word what are we learning god is gracious he's merciful he's glorious and then in our songs dave what are we singing 
God, you're merciful, you're gracious, and you're glorious. So that makes sense, right? As he reveals his glory, we glorify him by speaking back to him what he reveals to us in his word. Does that make sense? Now, but the practice, how does that work, the practice? Well, why does God give us the Holy Spirit? So that we might look like who? Christ. And when we resemble Christ, who gets the glory? Christ. We make him look good. Amen? That's why we're given the Spirit. And so, as we grow, and as the Spirit continues to work in us, uh, again, growing us in the fruit of the Spirit, and now we're looking more like Jesus, who's getting the glory? God is. The more we look like Christ, the more we glorify him. Last point, very quickly. A final question, and again, I don't even think it's necessary to answer this question now. It shouldn't be. Should we have to answer the question now, why should we glorify God? Well, I'm going to. But do we really need to? (laughs) But I'm going to. Okay. Because he is worthy. Why? Why glorify him? Because he is what? He's worthy. Again, let me just survey quickly through Philippians. According to Philippians 1, 6, he's faithful. The work he began in us, he'll bring to completion. Amen? He's faithful. He's worthy. According to Philippians 2, 8, Christ died on a cross. He died to save us. He's worthy. He's worthy. That's what I want us to see now. Okay? Paul's highlighting the supreme worth of Christ in the word of God so that we might what? Glorify God. According to Philippians 3, 20 to 21, Christ will return and he will finish his saving work in us. He is faithful. He is worthy. According to Philippians 4, 7 and Philippians 4, 9, the Lord gives us his peace and he promises to be with us. He is compassionate and present. He is, he's worthy. According to Philippians 4, 13, he strengthens us so that we might persevere in him because he's what? He's worthy. And lastly, according to Philippians 4.19, he supplies all of our needs. Some? No. All of our needs in Jesus Christ. He graciously sustains us. He is? He's worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Why should we glorify God? Because he is? He's worthy. Scripture again and again points us to the supreme worth of Christ. And the appropriate response to this worth, His glory, is that we glorify Him. Church, is this our goal? Is this our purpose? Is this your supreme aim, brother and sister? Is all that you do in life, from your marriage to parenting to your work, aimed at this most worthy goal, the glory of God? Now, according to our passage, we will glorify God forever and ever. Why? Because he is eternally worthy. Amen? He is eternally worthy of being eternally glorified by his glorified people. And that is what we have to look forward to. How can we grow here? Three practice steps, and then I'm going to pray. Number one, behold Christ's glory regularly in the Word of God. So be faithful and consistent in your devotional life. Okay? Be faithful and consistent in your devotional life. Again, what is God revealing here? His 
His starts with gla, ends with ori. His what? So that we might what? Glorify Him. Okay. Behold Christ's glory, number two, regularly in the corporate worship of the church. So, not only be faithful and consistent in your devotional life, be faithful and consistent in your corporate life, gathering with the body of Christ. With this, consider doing a one-on-one Bible study or a small group Bible study with others in the church. Behold together with God's people the glorious Savior and the glorious Word for His glory and honor. And again, for our good. It's for our good. Do you you get that? This is for our good. When we do this, we're walking in step with God's purpose for His people, and that is what? That is very good. And then lastly, hold out the gospel to others. Hold out the gospel to others so that others might behold God's glory in Jesus Christ. What happened to Paul? What happened to Paul? I mean, come on. Breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of God. And then all of a sudden, he beholds the glorious Savior. If you're a Christian today, that is your story as well. By God's grace, you heard the gospel. You were dead, made alive by the Spirit, so that you could embrace in faith the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, revealed in the glorious gospel of God. Amen? So if we want people to get saved, what should we be doing? Holding out the gospel to others. What should motivate our evangelism? God's glory. What happens when rebels become rescued worshipers? God is glorified. No longer is that individual shaking their fists at God but they're now raising their hands to God. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? Don't you want to see that? Those who formerly maligned the king now praise him. That's why we evangelize. We want to see more worshipers of Christ because he is worthy, right? The gospel. The gospel. God's glory revealed in the gospel. Again, the gospel is a beautiful story. It's a story of creation. It's a story of judgment. It's a story of salvation. The perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, lived the life we could not live. He died the death we deserved. And He rose again victoriously, proving that His saving work worked. And those who trust in Him are saved, justified, declared righteous, innocent before God. No longer enemies, But friends, amen? I got saved when I was 12. My pops was the one who shared the gospel with me. By God's grace in that moment, I was made to see my deadness, my lostness, my inability to do anything to remedy my situation. And at the same time that I saw that, I was made to see the hope of Christ that by trusting in Him, I could be forgiven and brought into God's family. And when I beheld the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in the gospel, my life was forever changed. Now, on this trajectory to bringing Him glory in all things. Amen? Listen, God saves us for a purpose. He saves us for His glory. Not to make much of us, but to make much of Himself. Who's with me?
Let's go. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, this gift, this treasure. In it, we have the beautiful Savior revealed. God, your character on display through your work of creation, judgment, and salvation. We see, God, that you are holy, you are good, you are righteous, you are faithful, you are kind, you are compassionate, you are generous, you are loving, you are good. And I pray that in unison our response would be to glorify your name. That we would praise you with our lives. That your glory would captivate us anew every day as we come to your word. And that all that we do from the moment we wake up till we go to bed, from the moment we have new life until you call us home, I pray that our singular pursuit together as a church family will be the glory of Christ in all things. And it's in Christ's name we pray, joyfully and thankfully. Amen.